Bonjour, bonjour, and welcome to another episode of EveryoneHatesMarketers.com, the no-fluff, actionable marketing podcast for people sick of marketing bullshit. I'm your host, Louis Grenier. After four years, 175 episodes recorded, 9,625 minutes of no bullshit content published, and 1 million plus downloads reached, I felt it was time to shake things up a bit. You see, I want to help you radically stand out because I firmly believe it's the only way for you to succeed without marketing bullshit. So moving forward, each episode is going to be around 20 minutes long. Each episode is going to be super practical where I'm going to teach you one way to radically stand out that you can apply to your business today. I'm going to use snippets of past interviews, the lessons I've learned from my own experience and plenty of concrete examples. Oh, and one last thing. I'm also turning each of those episodes into the only newsletter focusing on differentiation and positioning so you can read at your own pace and remember the concept I'm teaching. If it's of interest, I hope you'll sign up today on everyonehatesmarketers.com. I'll also notify you when I launch new stuff and products and you can win rewards for referring other Mavericks to the newsletter, like branded cups and t-shirts and posters and private group coaching and plenty of other nice little surprises. All right, on to the podcast. I had this idea of doing a teardown and an analysis of Daft Punk ever since I've been doubling down on radical differentiation and teaching folks and thinking about standing the fuck out every single day. I've been listening to their music for years and I really, really love the way they've been marketing themselves and the way it seemed from an outside perspective, at least, that they've been doing things very differently from the rest. And that one that was one of the things that helped them to become who they were. And when I saw they retired, I felt it was really time for me to do something and celebrate them. They've been working together for 28 years. So today I want to extract seven lessons you can actually learn from the way Daft Punk have stood the fuck out. So if you don't know Daft Punk, let me just sing to you a few songs. Better, harder, faster, stronger. And the reason why I have to sing them is because uh, I don't have the copyright. So I basically have to name them and, and sing them a cappella, right? Uh, so you do have Harder, Better, Faster, Stronger, the Get Lucky with Pharrell Williams, who's been like so famous, has done the rounds around the world and around the world being another one. So yeah, you, you probably have heard those, those songs before. So before I go into the seven lesson, I just want to go through a few facts about them so you know who they are and we are on the same page. They retired in 2021. They've been working together for 28 years. They've produced four albums, two live albums and 23 singles. One of their albums, Discovery, is ranked number 236 in the 500 greatest albums of all time, which is for an electronic duo quite a feat. They've gathered hundreds of millions of listens. They won five Grammy Awards, which is the first time for an electronic music duo. They've collaborated with the greatest Kanye West, Pharrell Williams, Giorgio Moroder, and many, many more. Uh, their lead single, Get Lucky, become Daft Punk's first UK number one single, and it actually became the most streamed new song in the history of Spotify. To just speak about the fame they've gathered throughout those years, in 2017, 
during the Bastille Day Parade in Paris, their song Get Lucky got played by a French military band in front of the French President Emmanuel Macron, as well as many guests, uh, including uh, former uh, US President uh, Donald Trump. They've influenced an entire generation of electronic music bands, as Krillex, for example, who's a DJ, has commented that seeing Daft Punk Pyramid live changes life. But yet they've only done a handful of live concerts, almost no public appearances, they never show their face, uh, they're quite famous for wearing helmets all the time. So I really wanted to understand from the perspective of radical differentiation how they managed to pull that fit. Just a word of caution before sharing those first seven lessons. It's always easier to go through the history of a successful band or artist or brand because survivorship bias is pretty much there, right? It's easier to look at it from the benefit of hindsight. It's easier to make sense of stuff that might not have made sense in the context while it happened. It's easier to find uh, patterns together and so I just wanted to give that before I deep dive into their story that it, it take everything that I say with a pinch of salt and hopefully it should give you the inspiration to also stand the fuck out in your own brand, in your own company and, and all of that. And then finally, I'm not a music expert, right? So I'm not there to identify what made their music specifically great. Um, I don't have the, the expertise there, but I can give you a lot of perspective from the marketing uh, standpoint. So first lesson be resilient as fuck, start small and then expand. Daft Punk met in high school in 1987 and they started with a rock group called Darling, which only lasted six months. They produced four songs, they did two gigs and they sold 1,000 copies of their CDs. And the British music magazine Melody Maker actually uh, said that their tracks are Daft Punky trash. And actually that accelerated the demise of the group. But they are quite resourceful because they didn't stop, they stood back up. The year after, they went into a rave in Paris and they were inspired by the energy they didn't really see before from the rock music. 24 months after that, two years after, they produced their first song, Da Funk. And it's easy, I think, you know, when you think about it from the history of an artist or a brand to, to look at like three years and brush it over and say, oh, three years is not too much. But think about it from their perspective. Even the biggest band, Daft Punk, started from nothing, right? They started with a minimum viable market. They started with rock. It didn't work out that much, but at least it gave them the idea for the name of their band, of their next uh, thing, when, when this journalist said that their tracks were Daft Punky trash. Daft Punk, originally in 1995, was mostly ignored. They only sold 2,000 copies. So then they went on to play in a few raves, and they got noticed by a Scottish label that specialized in electro music. At the time, in the late 90s, in France in particular, there was no labels specific for the electro music, right? Again, think about it from the perspective of resilience, right? They didn't start as Daft Punk from the start. They didn't think about all the electronic music they would be doing. They didn't have the expertise, and yet they got started. They got started. They might have failed, but they stood back up, and it took them years to reform, to do something. And then they finally got noticed by the Scottish label. And then the Chemical Brothers used their song and even asked Daft Punk to remix them. And that gave them a bit more, a bit more fame and they started to grow a bit more. Five whole years after being called Daft Punks, right, they signed with Virgin Records and sold 30,000 records, right? So not that much again. Then they produced their second album, Discovery, in 1997 and sold 220,000 sales worldwide. Then in 2001, they reached 2 million copies. Then they produced Human After All in 2005. They work with uh, Tron Legacy and the Disney team with the, like live musicians, orchestra. They reach an entire new audience in 2010. 
And then in 2013, they produced their last album, Random Access Memories, which isn't at all a rough, a rave party album, right? But the reason why I'm giving you all of that history is that you really need to take it from perspective. It's always easier to look at a famous artist or a famous brand and say they've always been this way. It seems like they've all started big, but they haven't. They started small with a rock band, then they expanded. And it took them, between the time they sold only 1,000 copies of their rock album to the time when they started to sell and have some sort of success it took them five whole years and yes they pivoted they changed things but they kept going at it they went after a small market they expanded you know they played only in raves then they signed with the electronic label which gave them a slightly bigger market which were like electronic enthusiasts electronic music enthusiasts in the late 90s then they sold to Virgin Records that helped them to, to get a, a wider audience and sold 30,000 records. And then the ball started to roll faster. And so this is the first lesson. Lesson one, be resilient, start small and then expand. Lesson number two, have a clear enemy to fight over. For them, it was the star system. They saw the impact that it had on others and they really wanted to avoid it. And, and their music, their art was also fighting against it. So. I'm just gonna quote Bangalter, who's one of the two of Daft Punk about this specific clear enemy and the star system. So he says, in electronic music today, there's an, there's an identity crisis. You hear a song, whose track is it? There's no signature. Everyone's making electronic music as the same toolkits and templates. You listen and you feel like it can be done on an iPad. If everyone knows all the tricks, it's no more magic. Electronic music right now is in its comfort zone and it's not moving one inch. That's not what artists are supposed to do. And then he says, today, electronic music is like an audio energy drink. Artists are overcompensating with this aggressive, energetic, hyper-stimulating music. It's like someone shaking you, but it can't move people on an emotional level. It's a way to feel alive, but it's not deep. It's surface. Maybe it's the difference between love and sex or eroticism and pornography. And you can see from this interview that was done before they announced their retirement, like a few years before, that they clearly have a clear enemy in mind, this star system that is producing like lookalike music. And so they actively fight against it. For example, when they signed their actual first record deal with Virgin Records, they requested to keep total creative freedom. That's something that is almost unheard of at the time when it comes to, to signing uh, record labels. They were very new to the scene and yet they requested total creative freedom so that they could not compromise, so that they could go all in and create what they really wanted to avoid sounding like everyone else's. It's also a choice for them to be famous, right? And they understood that it was a choice from the start to be famous or not. And that's why they almost never showed up to interviews and when they did, they were starting to hide their faces with masks. They would find in shops nearby. They would also hide their faces with black uh, bags, looking like hostages almost in a 2006 Icelandic interview where they were literally wearing black bags, all the way to going and purchase helmets specifically designed for them at $65,000 a pop, right? That they never took off, even during photo shoots. And that was also for them a way to fight against the star system. They understood the danger that it could have for them. They chose to remain anonymous as persons and instead shed light on the artist that they were. Another story, after meeting Virgin Records, uh, a limo were actually waiting for them outside and they decided to split. They decided to run from it. It just didn't want to. They didn't want to fucking go in this limo. And they left their producer hanging out with all of those XX in a very awkward move, right? And again, for them, this is a way to fight the star system. They don't want this life. They don't want 
to fall into that kind of trap of creating music that is like everyone else's. And that's also why they acted this way. And then another little story, they also stepped further and further away from electronic music to avoid being just copycats, right? To, and they decided to explore other genres. With Tron Legacy, for example, they started to work with orchestras and live music. With Random Access Memories, which is Dallas' album, they went all in in so many aspects, working with artists, uh, working in different studios. I mean, I'm going to give you a few more details in the next few minutes about this. But it's just another way for them to step away from this star system and, and, and really stop creating those aggressive, energetic music, but instead trying to move people on an emotional level. And it's clear that if they didn't have a good product, a good like good music in the first place, all of that would just be a gimmick. All of the stuff I told you would just be a gimmick. And I love what songwriter and actor Paul Williams said about that. He said that without the quality of work, it would have been a gimmick, but because they're Daft Punk, it's not a gimmick, it's something larger. So what's your fight? What are you fighting against? And it doesn't mean that you have to talk about it openly, the enemy that you're fighting against, but leaning on and leaning against something creates this energy for you and gives you a direction because when you're not going there, you're going somewhere else, right? It helps you to gather your energy and the energy of your team to go after a specific objective. And it helps you really to find your true north. And that's what they've done from the very start. They had a very strong understanding of what they were not going to do and who they were actually fighting against or the system that they were fighting against. The third lesson you can learn from it is to challenge category conventions. Some marketing experts would call them a reverse brand, for example, because they didn't do what was expected inside the electronic music. You could also call them a breakaway brand because they got inspiration from different art forms and industries. You could also call them a hostile brand because you know you kind of have to deal with them. It's take it or leave it, right? They they do their thing their way, they remain creative control. But overall they were radically different because they challenged category conventions. They really understood what was being done in the late 1990s in the electronic scene, and they challenged a lot of it. So back then, it was mostly trance and drum and bass in terms of electronic music. Uh, and electronic music was not that popular in the US. It was mostly in Europe, in UK and Germany. It was mainly for like partygoers and rave and specific nightclubs, but it wasn't as wide as it is right now at the time I'm recording this episode in 2021. And then dubstep appeared in the early 2000s. And the traditional way that it was done in the category was that they had those DJs, those people producing this music had no album. They mostly had shitty artwork and font, right? When it comes to like their flyers, they had no radio single, so it will never really go on the radio. They weren't producing video clips. It was also something done by the DJs at the time where they were known to hide, the public was known to hide their back to the DJ during raves because the music is bigger than the, the person producing it, right? They were using a lot of sampling. And as I said, it was only played in selected radio and clubs and raves and mostly underground European. And it's only when the influence of dance music started to grow around 2003-2004 that, that Billboard created the first ever dance slash mix chart, which is very interesting, right? And then by 2005, North America became obsessed with dance music. And according to Spin, Daft Punk performance at Coachella, which is a, one, a famous music festival, in 2006 was the tipping point for electronic music, right? It introduced the duo to a new generation of rock kids. And what they've done in this category is that they took what they liked out of this early electronic music scene, but they've also added a lot. So 
instead of just making the public turn their back and not really focusing on a persona and just making the music speak, they understood that they had to create something around them, some sort of a brand. They removed the, the, the fact that there was no album. They added albums to the mix. They produced very cool video clips from the start. They obviously submitted their stuff to radio. They took a lot of time to produce very good artwork and a brand around what they were doing. They kept using sampling like it was done before, but all of that enabled them to move the electronic music from an underground movement to something that is more uh, popular. So they played inside a category that was existing. They didn't try to invent a new genre of music. They evolved from what they knew. They took what they liked. They removed what they didn't. They doubled down on a few things and started to to create something that is quite quite, uh, congruent. This is my advice for you as well. When it comes to radically standing out, it's not about creating a brand new category from scratch that no one knows about. It's about leaning on things that already exist and taking what you like, removing what you don't, doubling down on things that feel like you, that feel congruent, and doubling down on that. Lesson four, love your craft and be obsessive over it. So the first thing to say here is, yes, I'm giving you an example of of artist and band, and you might say, well, it doesn't have anything to do with the product or service I'll sell. Well, art is a product. It helps people to connect with each other, to be happy, to be inspired, to have an experience, to tell a story, to alleviate boredom. Art is also a product. It's not as meaningful or maybe as something that you can put in a box as other type of product that we would sell maybe in a B2B setting, but it's still a product. And Daft Punk were absolutely obsessed over their music. For example, in Random Access Memories, their last album, it took them four years to create. And there is this uh, nice little example of how they were obsessive over over the craft with Giorgio Mordorer, who's a famous musician. They had him sit on a chair and they faced him with three different microphones. And their goal was to make him talk about his life, basically to record that. And they used three types of microphones, an old one from the 1960s, a one from 1980s and a present one. When Giorgio was talking about the 1960s to use the sound coming from the 1960s microphone, when the sound the sound would come from what he was saying about the 1980s, they would take the 1980s and so on. And what's so interesting about this is that no one really would make the difference between the three. It's almost impossible to hear any difference. But they kept they did that because they really cared so much about it, and they would hear the difference, but no one else would. And that's what it takes to create a product, a service, an art that really uh, stands out. They care about the smallest detail. They also hired choirs, string sections, trumpeters, pedal steel players. They recorded sound effects on the Foley stage at Warner Brothers. They played parts themselves, then paid session professionals who worked on Thriller and Off the Wall to play them better. Right? They coaxed vocals from guests like Panda Bear, Andrea Casablancas. They flew to legendary recording studios in New York and Los Angeles like Electric Lady and Hanson to capture the unique sounds and vibes of the classic rooms. Wherever they went, they kept the mics running, capturing freewheeling jams. And this is what I mean by the obsession over the craft. You can't be radically different without obsessing over the product you offer, the experience and the behavior that you have. And that's what they've done. They were so perfectionist about every single detail they were producing that it took them four years to develop their last album. Another example of that obsession is uh, when performing live, specifically when they played live at Coachella. So Coachella tried to get them in 2005 to play and they were even offered $250,000 to play. They say no. But then in the next year, in 2006, 
the group hadn't produced much in a while and there was kind of some pressure from from the public and from some experts that they were they seemed almost dead they seemed under pressure they didn't seem to have reinvented themselves they asked money from Coachella to build a set to build their show and they kept this set 100% secret even the producer at the time Pedro Winter didn't know what they were doing and they went all in they created a full-on pyramid where they were sitting they created the lead walls and at the time they created it they were the only one who did it they had to uh, get lead suppliers from different uh, parts of the country to be able to form this massive lead wall behind them right this is what i mean by this obsession they are willing to spend so much time on one specific show that they know is absolutely pivotal for their success. Coachella is, is probably the place to be for them. And so they took everything to another level. And this moment in 2006 inspired many people, many artists who were part of it. There was only around 65,000 people who, who saw this live, but this apparently created so much hype and, and so much interest that it inspired an entire new generation of people. This is what it takes as well for them. They spent so much time on the craft that they were able to really differentiate themselves from the rest, from other artists and electronic music. And instead of just producing music that you could do on your iPad, they took care of every single part of the experience they were producing. Not only the music they were creating, but the show they were giving alive in, in Coachella. And that was a turning point. Remember, I told you they seemed to be under the pressure then. And that was the, the turning point for them where everyone realized, well, they're always two steps or three steps further than the rest. So what can you do yourself to arrive at this level? What can you focus on to arrive at the level of perfection or level of craft that is almost impossible to replicate? Lesson five, think about fame and build it. You could call Daft Punk the anti-celebrity celebrity, right? Because they have such a rare output that made people pay more attention. And you might say that it's a fluke, that they didn't do that on purpose, that it was absolutely planned from the start. So one of the two Daft Punk, Bangalter, said, our output is rare, and that means people pay attention more. They spend their efforts where their biggest fans congregate. When they do something, they, they go all in. They focused on secrecy and surprise appearances. And you might think that it's not that much of a generous act, to do something like that, right? To actually not show too much of your faces or, or, or not producing too many things. But scarcity and surprise is a generous act because it builds anticipation. People who seek the new, people who seek something to tell themselves and others to be first, love that part of thing. And it created this entire universe around them where every single minute of them showing up their helmets, right? Instead of their faces would actually create such a buzz. They played a one-minute clip of Get Lucky in Coachella one year before the album. They only played one minute with them in the background and Farrell Williams playing that created so much buzz. They had this surprise appearance at the 50s Grammy in 2008. They appeared with Kanye West to perform a rework version of Stronger. In October as well, they made a surprise guest appearance during the Anchor of Phoenix at the Madison Square Garden where they played a medley. And they understood fame. They understand that to be big, you need to be famous. They understood that to become really mainstream when it comes to capturing the attention of millions of people, they really had to have a way for people to pay attention uh, to them. And they chose to be the anti-celebrity kind of celebrity. 
Another quick example to show you about the secrecy and stuff. They didn't spend a ton of money on marketing per se for their last album. And instead they were inspired by artists from the 70s and 80s like Cher, where they created a row of billboards on the way to Coachella, on the Sunset Strip. Because they realized that was way more magical than a banner ad online, right? And so they focused their entire craft and attention on this row of billboards on Sunset Strip. And so as a result of all of this, Random Access Memories had gone from a stunningly well-kept secret to one of the decade's most hotly anticipated release. You can see again that that was all part of the plan from the start, obviously with the helmets, the fact they were not showing their face, the fact that they very, very rarely gave interviews, the fact that they would focus on a very, very few things and do them so well and build up anticipation, they became the entire celebrity celebrity. So for you, the lesson is not necessarily to become the anti-celebrity celebrity. I'm not saying that you should limit your output. In fact, you could do the opposite. The key here is to take one level up and say, what are we going to do that most are not doing? And for them, they really understood that from the enemy they were fighting. They understood that most electronic music artists were overproducing and doing so much stuff because it was so easy. They were not spending that much effort everywhere they were. They might have been on like on every social media. They would, might have been uh, spending so much money on ads everywhere. They might have just done maybe 150 concerts a year. And they knew that they had to do something different in order to really kind of stand out. And that's what they've done. So again, the lesson here is not for you to just do what they've done, but to challenge the status quo inside your category when it comes to building fame. How can you make sure that more and more people hear from you and uh, build memory structures in people's mind? Lesson six is to keep your creative control at all costs. Earlier in their career, they decided to stop taking ecstasy because that actually made them lose their creative flair. They started to like everything they were listening to. And I think that speaks volume to their personality. Even when they signed their first record deal with the label, they were almost unknown. And they wanted to keep total freedom, total control of music and image. And this is a, such a strong fit for a young group, right? They never removed their mask during photo shoots. They went all in. When they received their five Grammy Awards in front of like tens of millions of people watching, they never spoke. They never removed their helmet. Um, when they had the last master tape done for their last album, they didn't let anyone drive it. They chose to drive it themselves in the trunk of their car. And so there is a reason behind everything they've done. And they knew that from the start. They knew that at the core of everything they've done was the craft, was the music they were producing. And that led to congruence. That led to everything connecting to, to each other. The fact that they were fighting the star system, the fact that they, they kept this secrecy, the fact that they doubled down on creative control, created this this possible to replicate movement and brand around them. Daft Punk is, is one of the most influential uh, music group in the world because of it. And the last lesson, lesson seven, is to connect things together. Uh, you might think that you need to come up with new ideas on your own, that you can't lean on anything else, you can't copy everything else. But the reality is that you're not God. You can't create anything from scratch. You have to lean and connect things together. And Daft Punk done that brilliantly throughout their career. For example, they've been very influenced by Goldorak, which is a Japanese animation manga style thing that they were watching when they were kids. And they really loved this world of manga. They actually commissioned the Japanese animator Leiji Matsumoto to create Interstellar 5555, which is a feature-length animation set to Discovery, the second album. And the first four episodes were shown on Toonami in 2001. They even released a film that was released on, to, on DVD in 2003. 
the electronic music and manga has almost nothing to do with each other, and yet they connected the two. They also were heavily influenced by hip-hop, Kanye West, and gangster rap, and Queen, and The Clash. A lot of their sound and sample are inspired by that. They also were inspired by Phantom of the Paradise, which is a 1974 American rock music horror comedy film, written and directed by Brian De Palma, and that featured Paul Williams that I mentioned before, right? Where this is the, the idea of the mask and all of that uh, came from. They also were very influenced by their dad, who used to be uh, in advertising and the ad world and billboards and, and the series of billboards they did on Sunset Strip is testament to that as well. And then finally, they were very much influenced by classical music. When they produced uh, Tron Legacy, they work, they got a chance to work with live choirs and classical, and they started to introduce that as well in their craft. Even if you are, let's say, in B2B marketing or a very specific industry, go beyond that because you will seek and you will get extremely interesting ideas from when touching on other worlds. And connectivity is truly creativity. So to summarize, lesson one, be resilient as fuck. You know, start small and expand. Two, have a clear enemy. For Daft Punk, that was the star system. Three, challenge category conventions. Lean on what is already done to expand, to create something new, to remove. Four, love the craft. Be obsessive about what you create, about the core of what you do, because that's how you can build something that can't be replicated. Five, build fame. Not necessarily by being the anti-celebrity celebrity, but build fame by being generous in one way, shape or form by doing something that others are not doing in your category. Number six, don't compromise on your vision. Keep creative control at all costs because this is what you offer at the end of the day is the core product and experience to your customer. And then seven, connectivity is creativity. Connect things with one another that shouldn't have been uh, connected. And the famous copywriter Eugene Schwartz said, what you're doing when you're being creative is trying to connect two separate ideas that logically would not go together up until that moment. You're not God. And that's what I have for you. I hope you enjoyed this first analysis of Daft Punk. That's it for another episode of EveryoneHatesMarketers.com. I'm pouring my heart and soul into this. Uh, it will mean a lot to me if you check out the newsletter that goes with this podcast at EveryoneHatesMarketers.com. I send this newsletter every Tuesday. It's packed with very practical, step-by-step, actionable ways for you to radically stand out. And when you sign up, you also get access to a free eight-lesson course on the same topic. All right, see you on the other side. And that's it for another episode of EveryoneHatesMarketers.com. Thank you so much for listening. I'm super, super grateful. I'd love for you to consider subscribing to my daily newsletter, Monday to Friday, called Stand the Fuck Out Daily. I send very short, hopefully interesting, surprising, shocking, entertaining content to help you stand the fuck out. It's at EveryoneHatesMarketers.com. You can subscribe for free and obviously unsubscribe whenever you want. I'm just going to read a couple of emails that I got recently as a reply. Juma said, your content attacks the mind primarily, which is such a good thing because most of us are skilled at what we do, but we don't have the courage to do it our way. Mark, who just subscribed a couple days before, said, this is my first issue of your newsletter. Love it. Glad I subscribed. Brianna said, I just realized this morning that my email habit is now to one, skim through the list, two, select all unread industry email except yours, three, delete and don't think twice, four, quickly skim yours. 
Amy said, also loving the new content that's coming from you. It feels really lovely. Candle said, I like your writing a lot. It really resonates. There's so much bullshit out there. It's good to touch the authentic. And Chloe said, where is the I fucking love this email button? Brilliant. I hope you subscribe. You'll be joining more than 14,000 subscribers at this stage, which is crazy. It's the size of a small stadium. Anyway, thank you so much. See you on the other side.